0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Kings 19. This is the last sermon that we're going to have on Elijah. For a while, we are going to do a series of questions for the summer, uh, large questions that are asked in and outside the church of the Bible. Although each sermon will be exegetical for the summer, we're going to break my hard and fast rule that you only preach through books. We're not going to do that this summer. Let's uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to study the book of 1 Kings for many months, to learn from Solomon all through Elijah, and then at a later date to pick up and read and learn through 2 Kings as well. Father, we... Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to worship as one church with traditions, with Marathon, with Weston, and Wausau. Father, we thank you that it's the bond of Christ that draws us together. And Father, as we talk a little bit about discouragement and depression, despondency, anxiety in the life of your choice servant, Elijah. We pray that you would give us a biblical perspective, that you would guide our time and allow it to be profitable. We believe that your word is inspired and inerrant without error, and so we ask that you would take it and apply it and impact our lives through it. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Today's text is about Elijah. Elijah during a very difficult time of his life. It's a time when Elijah is despondent, in despair, discouragement, depression, maybe anxiety. And I want us to notice, right off the bat, that nowhere in the text does God say, if you were a real prophet, if you were a real man of God, you would not suffer so. Pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps. You're an embarrassment. You're disqualified. We got no future for you. None of that is in the text. In fact, I think what we're going to see is that God ministers to his prophet at a low point in a very tender way. And of course, we're told in Scripture that not only are we to be imitators of God, but we are to bear up one another's burdens. So what we see in the text is exactly how we as individuals, we as a church family, ought to interact with one another during times of despair and despondency, depression and anxiety. Sometimes the church has acted rather foolish. And we said, you know, if you were really godly, you wouldn't feel that way. You wouldn't act that way. How immature of us. Why would we not encourage someone to get professional counseling, to go to an MD and a PhD who might help them with some meds judiciously offered? And why would we not come alongside and encourage and spur one another on in greater love and good deed? Church history and the Bible are filled with God-centered individuals who have suffered with anxiety and depression, discouragement, despondency, and the like. It is all over Scripture, whether we ignore it or not. I hope we don't, because that would be to our detriment. I think of King David. There are at least 30 passages in the Psalter by King David that evidence pretty severe discouragement, depression, and the like. Now, we're not God. I know, big revelation. But if we were God, maybe some of us would not say of David, he had a full heart for God. But that's what God said, and so it's right. And of that man, we read these words, Psalm 6, 2-7, to written by David, "'Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled.'" My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? In other words, how long are you going to make me suffer like this? Get me out of here. Beam me up. Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Skipping a little bit. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of my grief. That's a man who is really discouraged, depressed, filled with despondency. And God's assessment of David is that he had a full heart for the Lord. I think of Jeremiah. We sometimes call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Think of what Jeremiah was like. And think of the time period in which he lived. He's living in a time period when Judah... Is disobedient to the Lord, carried into captivity for 70 years under the Babylonian and Medo Persian empires. Have you ever read Lamentations? That's discouraging. This guy is not having a good day, week, month, or year. He doesn't even appear to be having a good adulthood. Things are not going well, and yet Jeremiah is certainly one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And yet he suffers. I think of Spurgeon. Spurgeon was called the Prince of the Pulpit in the 19th century. On the other side of the pond, Spurgeon wrote a couple hundred books, many of which are still read today. Spurgeon teaches people today how to preach. And yet sometimes Spurgeon didn't get out of bed for two weeks at a time. Because of discouragement, despondency, anxiety, and depression. I think of Emily Dickinson, Florence Nightingale, John Calvin and Martin Luther, John Wesley. The man preached 18,000 sermons. I don't even think that's possible. It's got to be a lie of history. These people suffered discouragement. Sir Isaac Newton, Handel of Handel's Messiah suffered great discouragement. Charles Dickens, who has entertained us, huge swaths of despondency in his life. And yet God used these women and men mightily for the kingdom. And rather than saying, buck up, keep your eyes only on the Lord, And, and if you were a real woman of God, a real man of God, you wouldn't so suffer God used them in the midst of their suffering as real people, ministering to real people in a real age. Well, that's true of our prophet today, Elijah. I want to pick up in 1 Kings 19. I want to read verses 1 to 4. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Let's stop there for a moment. Let's recap. You remember that God sent Elijah to Ahab and said, except at my word, chapter 17, verse one, and the last part of 16, except at my word, it will not rain. And it did not rain for three and a half years. And there is drought over the land and the wadis have dried up. The creeks have dried up. There's animal carcasses everywhere. People are suffering. There's migration out of the land. And Ahab has an all point bulletin to track down Elijah. He wants him dead or alive, preferably dead. And finally, after three and a half years, God says to his prophet, go show yourself a very risky proposition, yet in obedience to God, he goes to Ahab, and Ahab says, are you that troubler, that asp, that, that viper of Israel? And Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And then... Elijah sets up in the Mount Carmel region, a series of mountains, a contest with the 450 prophets of Baal, who is the false god of weather. And you remember the contest, humanly speaking, isn't at all even. There's 450 prophets of Baal, one prophet of Yahweh. It is Baal's home turf. What is Baal good at? Whether we have unearthed statutes of him holding bolts of lightning. All he has to do is send one little lightning bolt. Baal team gets to go first. They get most of the day. They set up an altar. They put a sacrifice on it. They lance themselves. They scream out. They cry out. They yell. They pray. And there is nothing because Baal is a figment of man's imagination. And at the end of the day, Elijah sets up an altar with 12 stones, each stone representing one of the tribes of Israel. He sets an animal on top of it, a sacrifice. He prays, has water poured over it in the middle of a drought, and then prays and whoosh, not only is the sacrifice, but the 12 stones representing the idolatrous 12 tribes of Israel is obliterated. A reminder to them, a reminder to us, idolatry is serious. It is an affront to a holy God. So when the text says Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, that was probably a long story. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. The 450 prophets of Baal had murdered many prophets of Yahweh. They had led an entire nation in idolatry into a crisis eternity away from God. The right punishment was death and they were put to death. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them, that is, you're going to die. And by this time tomorrow, Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. That is, he goes like 70 miles. That's a long run. That's a serious run, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Have you ever noticed that the highest highs and the lowest lows sometimes are parallel one to another? Sometimes they're in the same sequence of events? I think of Christmas. I love Christmas. I know it's a hard holiday for some. I love Christmas. I hate December 26th. Just dislike it. I go from this euphoria. And I love the month leading up to it. I love all the hymns. I love the singing, I love the pageantry, I'm exhausted. And then we have Christmas and I'm even more exhausted. And then 26 comes and I got to work and it's a bummer. I mean, it's, it's discouraging, okay? And not, not because of you, it's just, it's just a hard day. The highest highs are, are next to the lowest lows. And that's true for Elijah. Imagine the height of his euphoria. He has seen all of Israel say, If Baal is God, we will serve him. If Yahweh is God, we will serve him. And they realize that Yahweh is God, at least momentarily, an entire nation turns from idolatry towards the one true God. And he's euphoric. And then he gets news in verses three and four that a crazed queen, the queen who is a Canaanite queen who comes to Israel, bags, baggage, and Baals, and introduces this false, insidious worship of Baal, she says, may it be meat to me, and even more so, may the gods do this to me, if by this time tomorrow you are not dead. And suddenly, he takes his eyes off of the Lord, and he takes his eyes and puts them on the problem, and on the world, and on Jezebel, and he's terrified. Now, I would never say, not at all, that just because you're suffering depression or discouragement or anxiety or despondency, your eyes are off the Lord. That may or may not be true, but it is true for Elijah. And so while it doesn't necessarily pertain to all discouragement or anxiety or depression, it does for him. And there are some things in Elijah's life that I think could have helped him quicker out of despondency and despair. But he makes a few mistakes, mistakes that I recognize in my own life, and maybe you will also. The first mistake he makes is he does take his eyes off of the Lord. Now, I think that's kind of natural at this point. If you have a crazed queen coming after you and saying, you got less than 24 hours to live yeah I'm probably going to be very terrified as well, but even in such moments, I want to remember romans eight twenty eight and we know and we know that all things work together for good, two conditions for those who love God that is who are born again, who have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior. All things work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That is, who are confessed up, repented up, who are living for the Lord and appointed to the Lord. If we know Jesus and we're living for Jesus, even the difficult circumstances in our life, God is working for good. And someday, I believe by faith, Scripture tells me this is true and I believe it, I will get to look back and I'll say, Oh, I had no idea what you were doing, God. And I will see the tapestry of my life and how God was doing something much greater, much bigger than I could ever imagine because I see one tiny dot from one tiny perspective and I don't see all the big things God is doing. And Elijah, when I grow up, I want to be Elijah, so don't think I'm beating him up. He's a top five prophet. I mean, to be like Elijah would be incredible, but at least momentarily, he takes his eyes off the Lord, and he places his eyes on his problems on Jezebel, and he's not alone. I've done it. Maybe you have as well. The disciples know what it's like. I think of Mark chapter 4, and in Mark chapter 4, they're out in the Galilee, and if you know the Galilee, You know that the air comes off the mountains that are surrounding it, and hot air hits cold air, and it causes quick, impetuous storms. So the Galilee is not the safest lake to be on. So when you go on a trip with me to Israel, I always want to skip the boat ride on the Galilee. I know you never let me do it, but it's for your good. Actually, I just don't like that particular part of the trip, but everybody else does. But they have these momentary storms that arise. And Jesus is in the front. He's in the bow of the boat. He's sawing logs and the the clouds are getting dark and black and maybe there's peals of thunder and lightning. And they're looking at Jesus and they're ticked at Jesus because Jesus is asleep. And they got their eyes on the storm. And they finally wake up Jesus and they discover what we already know. Jesus can calm the storms of life. He can control the storms of life. But their eyes are on the storms, not on Jesus. I think of Peter, he gets beat up a lot, probably unfairly. I mean, think of Matthew 14. Peter is the only water walker in history. You haven't done it, neither have I. And he has his eyes on Jesus and he starts to walk. And all of a sudden he realizes he doesn't have his floaties on. And, and the waves are getting big. And his eyes go off of Jesus onto the water. And he goes, blub, 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 down into the Galilean tub. And it's not going well. And that's what happens to Elijah. And sometimes that's what happens to us. Whether just in life, whether facing troubles, whether in discouragement, despondency, anxiety, or despair regardless of the circumstances, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Remember Jesus. And I'm not trivializing depression, discouragement, despondency, and anxiety. I'm not saying that they're caused because we keep our eyes off Jesus. I'm just saying that all of life, when we keep our eyes on Jesus, life goes better, much better. During those low times, I want to remember scriptures. Not only Romans 8, 28, I I think of Philippians 4, 7. It says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I've cited that over and over again to myself, and I've shared it not in a condemning way, but in a a brotherly way with others, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I think of the second verse, that is Isaiah 26.3, it says this, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose eyes are stayed on thee. That's how I memorized it, a little different than what you have. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, Whose minds are stayed on thee. And I want to remind myself of that during the good and the bad times to keep my eyes on Jesus, not on my problems, not on life's Jezebels, but on Jesus. The second thing I notice in the life of Elijah is he has a tendency to go it alone. And if you've ever suffered discouragement or depression, you know that. You want to be isolated, you want to be alienated, you want to be left alone, and it's really a bad idea. No man is an island, no woman stands alone. The Lone Ranger needs Tonto, that's not a politically incorrect or correct statement, it's just out of my childhood. No emails, please. We just need to have life with one another. And yet I see in the life of Elijah a life of alienation and isolation. Now some of it's not his fault. You remember that first year in the three and a half years of drought God sent him to the brook Cherith where he had visitors twice a day, a raven in the morning and a raven in the evening. But then God sent him to Zarephath where he lived above the house of a widow and her son and he had fellowship in Baal's backyard. And here he has a servant But what I don't like is in the moment of his difficulty, he says to his servant, stay here. And he goes on ahead alone. It's not helpful. When you and I are discouraged, we need one another. We need to be around one another. I think of Julie. Julie suffered from depression and discouragement. And she often isolated herself. And when the moving truck for the new neighbors moved in, she said, you know what, I'm going to start a new leaf. I'm going to get to know my new neighbors. So she baked some bread and wrapped it up and got the courage to go over, knocked on the door and said, welcome to the neighborhood. I baked you some bread. And the woman smiled and said, thank you. That's very kind of you. Now this is a little embarrassing. We're not moving in, we're moving out. We've lived next to you for eight years. And that can happen to us if we're not careful. What is God going to do for the real prophet? He's going to send, verse 14, Elisha. He's going to send a buddy, a friend. Another thing that I see in the life of Elisha, which I don't think he can control, but I think he could help, and that is stress. Stress always increases, discouragement, despondency, despair. Well, he's got stress. He tells the king it isn't gonna rain for three and a half years, it doesn't rain. And then God tells him to go meet the king and then the queen, after a great victory, says, I'm gonna take you out, that's stress. But God says one of the ways we alleviate stress is rest. I think maybe that's why he was at the Brook Cherith for a year and he was at Zarephath for two and a half years. And I think that's why we're commanded in the first half of the Decalogue in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 to have a Sabbath rest. And you know what a Sabbath rest is? I think it gets a lot of bad publicity. A Sabbath rest is not only ceasing from normal work activities, but actually the part that doesn't get advertised is it is refocusing on God. That's what a Sabbath rest is for. It's not just the leaving what we normally do. It's the cleaving to God. That's what a Sabbath rest is for. And remember, the most important thing we need to do in all of life when suffering discouragement or not, when suffering despair or not, when suffering anxiety or not, is to keep our eyes focused on the Lord. And that's what God says, at a minimum, we need to set a day aside every seven days to feast our eyes on God. And that's what Elijah needs to do. And finally, I see in Elijah's life, unrealistic expectations it's embarrassing because I'm the master of that. I'm really good at unrealistic expectations. I put them on myself all the time. I got to learn this. I got to do this. I got to read this. I'm all about unrealistic expectations. And what does Elijah do? He said, take me from this earth. I'm not even better than my ancestors. What I would like to say is who said you had to be? Really? Really? Who said, Elijah, you had to be better than your ancestors? God said, pursue him. He didn't say you had to be better. We have lots of children who feel like they have to earn more or have more education than mom and dad. We have parents putting those expectations on children. Why? I don't know. Doesn't make sense. We have expectations that we have to live in at least as big or bigger house than our closest friends, or drive the same thing as our coworkers. Why? It, it doesn't make sense. Why do we have these unrealistic expectations? Why does Elijah say, take my life, I'm not even better than my forefathers? Nobody told him he had to be. I remember in middle school, middle school, I was in sixth grade when it suddenly dawned on me, My parents had gone to Ivy League schools. My grandparents had gone to Ivy League schools. My cousins had gone to Ivy League schools. So in sixth grade, I decided I was going to Princeton. Sixth grade. How stupid. It doesn't even make sense. I didn't even know what state Princeton was in. (laughs) It just was the only Ivy League school that none of my relatives had gone to. Literally. So that's where I was going, sixth grade. And then as a senior in high school, and this is not a me play Holy Spirit in your life, I'm just talking about my life. My 12th grade year, I thought, you know what? I am not nearly as godly as I think, and I could easily go one way or the other. I need to go to a Christian school. I'm not talking to you or even my kids. I'm just talking to me. I knew as a senior that I was right on the edge. I wasn't doing bad things, but boy, I was tempted by it. And so I went to a Christian school, and the only two I knew of were Wheaton and Houghton. So I applied to both. And by the way, my wife applied to two schools, Wheaton and Houghton. And we both chose Houghton because it was closer to home. God was going to put us together either way. Praise the Lord. And for years, I was embarrassed to tell anyone I went to Houghton. For years. You've never even heard of Houghton. And it was embarrassing to me because I knew where all of my relatives had gone, and I had gone to a school nobody had ever heard of. Who told me I had to go to Princeton? Well, my grandfather did. He actually disowned me when I became a pastor. And then at age 90, I led him to the Lord. And at 92, I buried him. But my parents never told me. My parents didn't care where I went to school. I had no relatives other than my grandfather telling me. It was unrealistic expectations on my life that I put. Silly expectations. Made no sense. But we do that, and Elijah did it, and he said, it's enough now, O Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. And that's how he lived at that moment. And God began to do something great in his life. Let me pick up in verses 5 and quickly read to 19. And he, Elijah, lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord, by the way, that's Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord. If you doubt that, read Judges where they worship the angel of the Lord. It's Christ. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his faith in his cloak. He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. He had already rehearsed this, you know that. He was ready for for God. He He had a word for the Lord. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even only I, am left. Not true. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you're an embarrassment. It's not what it says. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000, not just you, Elijah, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that is not kissed him. Notice how God treats his prophet. And as God treats his prophet, that's how we ought to treat one another. In verses 5 to 8, he gives them a sabbatical because ministry is tough. He says, you need 40 days of rest. He says to all of us, we need a day of rest to feast our eyes on the Lord every seventh day. We need that rest. The second thing is he sends a ministering spirit, an angel, to attend to his servant. I think of Hebrews 1.14. It says, that, are not all angels ministering spirits sent by God to those who are part of his family? Think about that. Are not all the angels ministering spirits? I don't know how many angels there are. I know in Revelation 4 and 5, at one moment, in one scene, we have 10,000 times 10,000 angels worshiping the Lord. That's like 100 million. So we have at least 100 million angels, maybe more. And I think when you and I get to heaven, we're going to look back and say, oh man, I had no idea how I survived that accident. You sent a ministering angel. I had no idea how I got through that difficulty. You had a ministering angel there for me. That's what Scripture says is going to happen. God also offered him a new perspective. A new perspective in life. He said, come out of that dark cave. Take your eyes off of Queen Jezebel. Feast your eyes on me. Remember that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Remember that that the peace of god surpasses all understanding and it will guard your heart and mind in christ jesus feast your eyes on me you need a new perspective and then god does something remarkable he says after those 40 days i've got work for you he doesn't say because of this embarrassing time in your life we're not we're not trusting you again with ministry he gives him big ministry. He's appointing kings. He's appointing a prophet. He's training a prophet. This is the only time that we know in history that we have schools of prophets. Do you know who runs them? Elijah and then Elisha. He's got big ministry. So rather than being shelved because of discouragement or despondency or anxiety or depression, God says, "Now, in the midst of this, I've got work for you to do. You are a kingdom builder. And so if you suffer from despondency and depression and anxiety and discouragement, God has work for you to do. You are a kingdom builder. God gives them a new place, a new plan, and then a new friend. He gives them Elisha. Because no man is an island. No man stands alone. And remember Galatians 6.2. Bear up one another's burdens. And so as the Lord models in the life of Elisha, so we ought to live out in the lives of others. And we ought to be the body of Christ. And we ought to care for people in the church and outside the church who suffer. And we ought to bear up one another's burdens and we ought to imitate the model of Christ, the model of God in the life of Elijah. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for 1 Kings 19, a very real text, a real situation an experience that many among us have had, or even now are having, where we have discouragement or despondency, depression, anxiety, or we'll suffer from something else. And rather than putting us on the shelf, you encourage us to feast our eyes on you, to get rest, to get perspective, to be around, not to isolate and alienate, and to serve and to minister to advance your kingdom. Father, we thank you that that's your heart and may it be our heart as a church and as individuals. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.